Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and the annual Vintage Rock Pod summer break is over. This is episode 96, in fact, of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app right now, whichever you're listening to. Just press the subscribe button so that you don't miss a single episode. Although I've not been releasing shows for the last six weeks, I have been hard at work in the background, organising and getting things ready for a busy few months in the run-up to Christmas. Now, as always, I've got a whole host of classic rock stars lined up for you, a real mix of genres and different styles as well, from punk and AOR to hair metal and radio rock. We've got lead singers, guitarists, drummers and bass players got lots of new guests and a few returning guests for you as well and as you know vintage rock pod loves all classic rock styles from the 60s 70s and 80s and i hope you're going to enjoy the classic rock ride with me now today's guest is an absolute legend the lead singer and guitarist with what can only be described as a british institution now straight off the bat i have a lot of listeners in north america and i know this band didn't really find success there but please do stick with us as this band were absolutely huge pretty much everywhere else in the world we're talking 100 million records sold the band who opened live aid at wembley stadium four platinum records in australia number ones right across europe and they are one of the most successful rock bands in UK chart history with more than 60 top 40 singles. 22 of those were top 10 hits, 22, and they've had 25 top 10 albums as well. In a career spanning from the 60s to almost the present day, the last release was 2019. I am of course talking about the British institution that is Status Quo. And I'm delighted to be joined by the band's lead singer, Francis Rossi. He's a real bundle of energy and certainly just says whatever he wants, that's for sure. But before we hear from Francis, I just want to give you a quick update on all things VRP. Firstly, what a response to my interview on episode 95 with Steve Vai. It's now the most listened to episode of Vintage Rock Pod ever. Incredible download numbers on that episode, and to be honest, the recent ones with former Rainbow alumni, vocalist Graham Bonnet, and keyboard player on Rainbow Rising, Tony Carey, have been stunning as well, so a big thanks for checking out those shows. Also, on the YouTube front, Vintage Rock Pod is growing rapidly. Over three quarters of a million views on the channel in July alone. Over two and a quarter million in total, 8,800 subscribers, and growing. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do. There's loads of cool videos on there for you to watch. And finally, there is a way to support Vintage Rock Pod 2. A few people have asked over the years how they can support me and the classic rock community that I'm trying to build. Remember, Vintage Rock Pod is just a one-man band. I do everything all by myself. Well, now on YouTube, you can become a member. Yes, a Vintage Rock Pod member. It's just $1.99 US dollars or British pounds a month, and that will give you access to exclusive perks on there. It's not 
a lot. It's less than a coffee at one of those big brand coffee shops. And the best part for you is that there's no minimum joining period and you can cancel whenever you want with no questions asked. I hope you don't, but if you'd wanted to, then that's absolutely fine. So if you've listened to Vintage Rock Pod or watched the video since its launch in October 2020, or you found the podcast along the way since then, and you'd like to help out, then please head to YouTube, search for Vintage Rock Pod, and on the channel page or underneath any of the videos on there, there's going to be a button that says join. If you click on that within minutes, it's all going to be done. And I will be eternally grateful for your continued support. Right, let's get back to today's interview then. Francis Rossi. We talk about the band's breakthrough single, Pictures of Matchstick Men, the price of success, the turning point in the band, them going on to produce their own records in the early 70s, some of the big hits, playing Live Aid, how he feels about being called a three-chord wonder, whether he regrets not trying to break America, and so much more. So please do enjoy this chat with the wonderful Francis Rossi. Pictures of Matchstick Men, I mean... Obviously, a, a big song for you guys broke you into the consciousness of, of people, uh, especially here in the UK. But there's a famous story that it was written while you were on the toilet. Is that correct? Some of it was. I started to write the thing in the afternoon. It's a story that goes in the tunes and chat thing that um, my wife at the time, I'd, I'd, I'd only been married a few months, two months, and her and her mother went out. And, uh, and they came back, so I went in the toilet. And we lived in a prefect. And so it's very narrow, so I ended up kind of like this, trying to – and the guitar wasn't plugged in. Yeah, I kind of finished some of it. In there. But it's one of those things people love to hear, you know, that he wrote in the – we're in show business, but they stretch the truth somewhat. We're worse than politics. <laughs> and in terms of the uh, the riff then, the famous riff from that song, I mean, where did that come from? I was just sitting – it's interesting because that song, there's a lot of stuff in that song. I keep saying I should do the idea that I sat down trying to copy of Jimi Hendrix thing and uh and and the whole meter of songs before that was very much like old they're doing bang 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 of a few years of that and then we went to tune ticka tune ticka tune which the oasis um yeah oasis did some years later again <clears throat> there were lots of things that i when i wrote a song later on called roll over lay down like something in my mind was copying the riff i had this riff or this figure and then that became the melody. So the same thing kind of happened with Maximum. Oh, yeah. And then, so that on its own sounded a bit silly. A single string, ding, 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 ding. So I tuned the top string down to the B string, but it's slightly out of tune, which makes that weird resonance when, you know, if you, you are you're a musician, aren't you? And uh, when you get two strings out of that, and then you, when that's double tracked, there's this fabulous noise. It's strange that we, if you like, as musicians, want things in tune. Yeah, well, Maxim, that's how Maximin came about. We sat there that afternoon, and it was great for us initially, but then it, it, it immediately shot us in the foot. Yeah. Because I remember John Peel saying to us, and a few other uh, people said, that, oh, and I heard that. I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. And they, your picture comes up in your mind, which is interesting because when you go to the voice later on and you say, you're just going to sell the voice. You can see these people turn around and go, oh, shit, how am I going to sell that? <laughs> it's show business, you know. So when people saw us, and I know John Peel saw us and went, oh, shit, that's messed with my, my imagey thing, who I think I am, and so on. And so we lasted about a year with that song and then struggling to get another hit and hanging on to success. It was the dropping out of that and somewhat thanks to Bob Young because he pushed us to get away from our first manager. He was a lovely man, but... 
was not at all well versed in the, the ways of show business, if you like, or hmm. and I'm thinking about the nasty side, the cutthroat side. And so Bob encouraged us to go with Colin Johnson, who's probably the best manager we ever had. He believed in it so, so much and uh, guided us a lot. He came up with album titles and covers and all sorts. So really was focused. He was probably as focused as the band. Yes, yeah, so that Maxim men really great, but also shot us in the foot instantly. But again, the plus from that was that we fought back and it gave the band that galvanised, um, we're a team fighting the world. And then later on, success comes along. And that will dissipate somewhat that you, each one of us thinks we're the reason it's successful. Yeah. And that's understandable. And it gets very, very fractious when you've been together that long. And uh, inevitably, it kind of falls apart. And that to me seems to be the logical progression of things that, like I said, I got married. The others eventually got married. You become a father, you're a homeowner, and so on. You earn money, you become, you change as you get older. If you don't, you're a dickhead. You're still the dickhead you were when you were a kid. Sorry, you didn't even ask me the second question. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. That's wonderful. Uh, you mentioned that the success came, the, the galvanised of the, the band came together and, and the, the sound forged. And it was really pile driver. It marked a big change in the band's career. I mean, it was the first record on a new label, the first one that you guys produced yourselves. It marked a change in the, the sound as well. Now, it was a real pivotal moment for you guys, wasn't it? Yeah, but the idea was that we were kind of going back to where we were in 65. In terms of the rawness, if you like, we'd adopted some sort of recording technique with the matchstick man thing and followed trends. And, um, and then Bob was herself. Bob Young was instrumental and we were all writing with him and I got really into writing with him. And we started to, he was keen on trying to do blues things. And I think it was my pop influence and his blues liking. We, I, he kind of taught me to like blues. I'm very much secondhand blues. I never understood where Clapton and all those guys got it from because I didn't freaking hear it. I didn't hear that on Radio Luxembourg or whatever. <laughs> and um, But Bob uh, encouraged us along that route, and it, Bob and I wrote a song called Spinning Wheel Blues. But we also liked country a lot, so that's where I think Bob and I really are based. It was the thing we both liked together and written very well together. So in terms of the, the producing <laughs> then, I mean, you guys taking the decision to, to produce the record yourselves, how did that come about? That's tricky because um, Colin Johnson, we were we were making it, we were still under contract to Pi, I believe, but, and, and Brian, Brian, he, he ran um, Vertigo Records to get on Vertigo as a very hip label kind yeah. of thing. Shepherd, Brian Shepherd, he used to work for Magna Carta, a band Magna Carta, and uh, he was he was watching us, which was interesting. He came to see us, he was going to sign us. It was probably about a year before he did, and so we started to record stuff. And uh, the idea that the band produced was. I suppose I did most of that, and um, that's what generally happens. I read somewhere that a previous studio staff were unhappy with with you guys in studio, saying that you were too loud, you were you're too over the top, and they couldn't they couldn't actually record you. So I suppose you producing yourselves helped you bring out your own sound and and actually well, evolve into what you were. There's a guy, a guy Damon Lyons Shaw, that worked at um, IBC Studios. Great studios. It was funny because I know and I people know where it is along Portland Place. And they're huge buildings, they're huge rooms, very high ceilings. And you were allowed to, people would rent them for so many years on the lease, but they weren't allowed to touch it structurally. So you had to develop it. And we would quite often, um, we'd build a tunnel with big screens, put the drums behind there. So if you hear records like Caroline and various other ones, you can hear where, when it goes into the quiet section at the end, 
you saw there the compressor opens up and you can hear, oh, oh there's the drum set, there's the snare drum. Oh, that's – and I used to listen to a lot of early Sleepwood Mac records, early Sleepwood Mac and they would use small amplifiers and stuff, and the microphone would be put over in the corner and sing in the room. So the solo, the loudest thing in the room for the solo section, it did it, this ambience of the room. We've subsequently been years making ways of making ambience, but some of the best things are in those studios. And, yes, we were too loud, but it was, again, rebelling against being told we couldn't be that loud. But early records around the record an AC-15 and I had an AC-30. And I, I don't want to be as loud as you. And then it became a, a competition of who was going to be the loudest. And it, it ended up being Rick being the loudest and always being the problem with the, with the volume anywhere. And it's a strange thing that this image of rock going to be loud when there have been many acts, and I can't say who they are, it would be cheating, but you see all these massive stacks from the stays and movement stuff, particularly American acts. And behind it is a chair and an amplifier about, you know, a 20-watt or a 50-watt amplifier. And that's the best known. There was a band that did a tour with us. And I remember going to stand on the tour. The guitar player's name was Bill. That's all I remember in America. And when it stood by the 4 by 12 and this tiny little sort of waft in the jar noise coming out. Oh. Well, she got to stand by our 4 by 12 and their hair will move, you know, that kind of stuff. And there was this thing because it's rock and it appears loud front house that it should be loud. And that's probably the biggest mistake we've ever made is trying to. But for all those mistakes, our yin and yang, uh, where we live in the realms of relativity, you make this mistake, but what that gives you is this. And that seems to be the piss that's driving me AI, you see. It's going to be a problem, but it's going to be some good shit with it. That's going to get me in trouble again, isn't it? Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Um, well, then... You remind me of somebody. It's either uh, John Deacon or a bit of John Deacon or oh. somebody else. You don't mind that one, then. Let no, me find somebody that's not so. <laughs> no, it's just in that laugh. Anyway, sorry. Somebody I know. Sorry. I'll come to you. Um, so anyway, yeah, that started a run of really unprecedented success. I mean, the next record, Hello, was your first... Uh, record of yours that went to number one. I mean, how did that feel at the time? Fantastic. And again, it's still that thing. I, it's straight out. I live, I live in a house now. I've been here about 16 years. I lived in the same place within, you know, a half, you know, 100 yards of where I've lived for the, since 1974. And one of my sons, we were looking forward to moving here. And we didn't even do a big move. We brought stuff around in the car. So I moved my bathroom in slowly and we had. And then it was around about we got to, I don't know, somewhere in the year, and he said, Dad, I said, yeah, what is it? He said, what's it better looking forward to being here than it is being here? I said, yeah, somewhat, it does that. So what's the question? <laughs> Just the how, question? How, how did it feel when you actually got the number one? Right, so there we got to number one, yeah. Well, the next one is another number one, yeah. And then another one, and then the one that didn't go to number one is the letdown, isn't it? So the one of the things, any band, anything that's developing, yeah, good. While you ain't got it, yeah, we've got somewhere to go. We get there, oh, fuck, there's nowhere left to go, only back down. So somewhat, if you think after we stopped having those consecutive number ones, it's been falling. <sighs> and I've got no nails hanging on to success. And, shit. and I find that's, that's life generally with everybody, everything we do. And... Uh, when I see younger bands, and I've worked with a few younger bands over the years, particularly via some of my sons, and I've got some sons, um, 
They're all after um, emulating what we did in the seventh. They want a they want a big deal. No, you don't. Yes, we do. No, you don't. <laughs> You're gonna start off getting in debt. Don't talk shit. Don't talk shit. But it's because again, showbiz, the glorious thing that is not showbiz or showbiz. So I find that um, so many acts are trying to emulate what we did through the seventies, and it's. Talked to somebody yesterday. You realised that the amount of acts that were all we were all kind of muckered up and friends through the late sixties and early seventies, we would play the ground at Croydon or this various this this circuit, and it'd be us, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, uh, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and it goes on free, and all these acts are all some monumental success, all in the period really of three years, which developed through the seventies and the eighties, and and subsequently most of them were uh, enormous in America. And somebody was saying to me yesterday, "Well, that happen again? Well, I don't suppose it can, can it?" <laughs> you are looking like John Deacon a bit. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with that. Yeah, I'll stick with that. bloke. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you, you mentioned there the success. I mean, did, you talk about being up there and the only way is to come down, but you've had more hits than any other rock band in the UK. I think it's over 60. I mean, 22 yeah. top 10 singles, 25 yeah. top 10 albums. I mean, that's incredible. You mentioned yeah. America there, but despite the success here in the UK, you never cracked America. Is that something that you, you, you regret or yeah, do you look back on yes. that? Now, yes, but at the time, I probably had a modicum or sense than the others that there was, it was getting to a point where we'd made all this money and were making all this money and generating income and going to American spending and chasing the Yankee dollar. I remember that chasing the Yankee dollar. Lots of acts, to their credit, hung on to it to fight and get America. If we'd have lasted, tried to stay a bit, a couple more tours there, we would be in a position now where the worst way we'd be able to do two and a half, three years' work of playing to roughly three to 5,000 people a night and never repeating the venue, mm-hmm. whereas we, we're stuck this side. I don't mean it as a negative. It's something. Whether Rick and I would have killed ourselves or all of us have killed ourselves with drugs and indulgence, possibly. But at the time, it seemed like a sensible move. I could imagine whether it's our parents or older generations saying you had all that success and you went to America and chased it and lost all that fucking money. I grew up in retail kind of, so it was try and act sensible, guys. And um, I remember sitting in California and looking at the map where we were and thinking, the chances of breaking this country the same as we did any other country, you just kept working the territories and you just kept going back and you just kept going back every three to four months until you built it, and inevitably you kind of did. And that's the way a lot of other bands worked America. But we didn't. And so it's funny, on the on the tunes and chat tour thing, I do, there's a Q&A, and people say, would you do it all again? And you go, well, no, I'd rather not have left Bernadette's mother. I'd rather not have done cocaine. I'd rather not have done drink, drink, cocaine. I'd rather not have done this. I'd rather not have done this. I wish I'd left sleep this quiet in the earlier period when I first wanted to leave and do stuff like but I wouldn't be where I am today. And I, it's, it's easy, all of us to say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't do that. But are you sure by not doing that, which seems good not to do cocaine or whatever, where you'd have been, you're sure that where you'd have got to in this place would be better? And, and, and we tend to assume that it would. And I no longer assume that it would during the Tuesday chat tour, that I, I cannot believe how much I enjoy it. 
And I keep thinking, I'd love to have done it before, but it couldn't be before. It's now. I, I'm very, very enthused about it now. It's just that I'm nearly 51 now. 50, I'm getting older now. <laughs> so when we talk about the success, I mean, obviously, you are a British institution, but it's not just Britain. I mean, Europe, Australia had platinum, multi-platinum albums over in Australia as well. So the success was yeah. just incredible. We still want more. We still yes. want more. It never stops. It's similar human to nature. drugs and life. Yes, human nature, actually. What do you want more? And you see so many people in showbiz that get lost. Uh, I have to quickly touch into to, to the 80s and in the army now. Now, I was living in Germany, West Germany at the time when that came out. My dad was a British Army Forces man. He was serving in West Germany. We lived over there. Um, and the song, it became an anthem to to everybody. It was huge. Now, why did you choose that song? Because it was originally by Bond, oh, Bond it. wasn't it? Oh, I loved it. I was in um, in Ireland. I used to take two weeks off and go stay at uh, Bernalette's mother. I'd go into Dublin, we'd stay, I'd stay there for two or three weeks. And on the Sunday afternoon, there used to be this in Casey Cason show from America. And I really used to enjoy it. And this track came on. And it was, oh, really? Oh, what is that? And there was a kid I knew at school who was always getting in trouble. It's Duke McCann, his name was. He was all coming into school, beaten by his dad, bad, you know, nasty mark. But he would get in trouble for whatever reason. And then I remember a few times he'd go out of school, he'd run out of the room, sent to the headmaster, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, look, I'm going to join the army. And I heard that, I thought, I wonder if you ever did join the army and the reality of that. Oh, it's like, we got you now, son. Yeah. And I wonder how many guys went, oh, fuck, I didn't know it was going to be like this. You know, we know that people recruited in World War One, World War Two. They used to send them out in the pubs where all the guys went, where you the peer group or oh, peer pressure. Get in there, yeah. You wake up sober, you'd sign up. And that, that sense that no one gives a damn and no one gives a shit. And it was the reality of it to me. Plus, I think it's a great song. And John Edwards, the bass player, said this quote: "We always call it a bar. I never know where the friggin' hell you are in it." Most songs, they're anchor points. You know where you are. And so there are, I shouldn't say, there are points where John, he, I, I look, I've got a eyes, so I look out the corner of my eye and he does a signal for me. And he'll look at the floor and it's that one there. And this one there is, so I do signals. Otherwise, I will get lost in, in the army. And we have sometimes got terribly lost in the middle of the song of in the army. Where the fuck are <laughs> But I loved it, and I thought it was either going to be a massive, massive hit or a resounding, you know, slop. And it was it was definitely not mid. And Andrew and I used to be able to sit and say we'd write something or we'd say it's, yeah, it's the top five, that's the top ten. It's only top 15, that one. Which you think about, a top 15 was a quarter of a million yeah. singles or more. <laughs> and that's um, and just this territory, you know. And um, I remember just thinking that it's a struggle to get it out. First time wanting the band to do it, they didn't like it, didn't want to know. And it wasn't until we reformed that, and Rick said, I'll do anything you say. <laughs> that was Rick when he was in trouble. And um, Pip Williams produced, and I think he did. It's probably one of the best records we've made. It was a record we'd made, not a recording status quo. And another one we did was when we did that covers album, and covers albums, but the one we did with Pip. And it had uh, When You Walk in the Room on it. It was a fantastic record. To be able to say that about one of your own pieces without fear of 
Please yourself. Uh, and those two records, Pip Williams' production on those was impeccable, I love to say, because he loves to say my tracking was impeccable. And he was a nitpicker, though. And we used to call him nitpicker, nitpicker, pick me a nit. But yeah, <laughs> I, but that was so, I just thought that song was going to be as big as it was. But again, ostracized lots of fans. We lost lots of fans on that one, as we did with Rocking All Over the World. Wait, mm. how would you know? Um, no, as you said, no. that, album, that album was the first after you got back together and it was um, after Live Aid as well. I'm going to quickly touch on that incredible day. I mean, what do you remember about that day? And what do you remember about being asked to be involved on, on that day oh. and playing first and things? Bob Geldof asked us, Rick and I were doing promos some sort. We were off for the summer, which is unusual. And he came in, it was the same record company. To me, it was just some upside, some new Irish band. You know, <laughs> and... Uh, he had that air of superiority, and he still has that. I suppose it's the education. And um, he asked us, well, we're not, no, thanks. See you, Rob. I'm not interested. And uh, we carried on, you know, and I think we were there a week or so later or something. And he was he kept coming. He said, look, you know, I'm really getting this. I'm really getting that. And he said, it's, I said, look, we're not getting on as a band. He said, it doesn't matter how far could you sound like. It's such a sweet talking fucker. <laughs> and um, he said, if I can get one of the older bands, the thanks. Well, I've just gone out um, to do it. I can gather it. Subsequently, I found out he did that to a lot of the older acts. But once everybody had agreed, then showbiz kicked in. Everyone said, I'm not going on first. I'm not, yeah. I can't go on this one. I'm bigger than them. I'm bigger than him. this fucking shite hit the fan. And then uh, uh, Colin was saying to us, you know, he said, I've got serious trouble. And him and I, uh, Rick and I said, we'd go on first because we had no idea what the gig was going to be. We yeah. could be committed to do the fucking thing, kind of. What do we don't do that for? Well, we can get in there, be on at midday, be home by 12. What? We finished <laughs> at 10 past. We'll be home by half past 12, not knowing that it was going to be that big. And then when we got on the gig, there were all these rules you could be in. And everyone was very well behaved, which is weird. But suddenly everybody came out of the frigging woodwork who weren't on it. And um, we came off the stage and the thing, and everyone was like that, kind of like. But there was this sort of sick grin on everybody going, shit, she's have gone on first. Because <laughs> none of us realised that that opening and us on there, that went worldwide. I don't know how many times that day and the rest of that week. That kind of PR, you couldn't, you couldn't buy it, as they say. And loads of people. Subsequently, the next one that went on some years later, I believe you two wanted to go on first because we were busy or something. And that we were asked to do that one as well and couldn't get back to go on. We said, we can go on first. And they said, somebody else wants to go on first. These are surprise, man. <laughs> and uh, I'm knocking and being sarcastic, but that is show business. And um, never thought it would be that big. Quite an experience, but the overall the overall sense of euphoria from the audience, you never felt that sense or before. This sense of galvanised again, that unity, that everybody was doing something kind of worthwhile. It was the era, like you said, of um, all the stuff that was going on in the world. And it was the lives of money. It was Harry and yeah. but his lives of money, take the piss of the bankers and stuff. So I think they all thought we're going to do something worthwhile. But I also thought that British Airways could blank their ads on telly for a while. All those things could have been put in the pot, but as usual, to Bob's credit, is that they are, oh, don't worry, it'll go away. 
They'll do it for color. It'd be gone. Fucking bollocks. And that's what they did. Fucking bollocks. Rather than really, truly raise some phenomenal amounts of money. I think he raised about 80 or so million or something at the time and probably did some good. But again, if we really, really, really wanted to, we could have been hundreds of millions and everybody could have got on board. But I'm a grumpy old shit. But there you go. <laughs> I just want to touch on something that often gets thrown at the band and to, to get your perception on this. I mean, everyone says Three Chord Wonders. And in 2007, you released an album saying uh, what was titled In Search of the Fourth Chord. Now, well, of course, yeah. did you... Comedy, that's did, comedy, that, yes. Yeah, exactly, comedy. But did it make you angry? I mean, is because obviously that was your 20th album. It's obviously <laughs> taken a long time to come to that. So did the, the accusation of the Three Chord Band only, did that make you angry? Did it annoy you? Times it did, at times it doesn't. At times I can be funny about it or stoic about it and, and philosophic, philosophical about it. But I say this on the Tunes and chapter of the Tchaikovsky uh, chapter number one in the main section. It's a 145 sequence. And a lot of the ones we've done have been 145 and variants on a 145. Bomb. And La Donna Immobile called Puma is a 145. So many blues things are one four five. Say the quo aren't the only ones. Chuck Berry had a career. I'm, see, I'm excusing it against, and I can't. I can imagine people out there going, "Oh, I would have loved this one if I knew they could have put one more chord in it." <laughs> oh, kind of rubbish, you know. Most people are not really aware what a bloody chord is or how many notes it takes to change a chord. Do you like it? Yes. That's all you need to know, really, on anything. I remember being interviewed from. I was, we were in Los Angeles for some reason. I just had a fabulous breakfast. You know, hash browns, I love all that shit. And uh, I was being interviewed by this Dutch guy, and he was really talking about stuff, and I was watching on as usual. He said, yes, I, am you. I like you, Francis. I only like the good music. I didn't say I only like good music. I just like the music I like. I don't know that it's good. I like <laughs> <laughs> Stand up for your face, didn't I? Or how much is that doggy in the window? Or um, there's loads of things I like. Nelly the elephant. Oh, it can't be cool. I love it. Sorry. So we always trying to validate our position, which I'm probably trying to do now, right? And just quickly coming to towards the end, then um, you, the last record you guys brought out was 2019. That's over 50 years of releasing music. You've seen it all in that time, the, the, the record industry, the music industry. You've seen phases come and go, the height of prog and punk and glam hair metal and grunge and all that sort of stuff. What did you like and what didn't you like throughout this, this crazy period of music we've had? I don't know. I, I figure I don't like rap much because it just seems attitude. In the world. I don't necessarily like the attitude. However, I'm older, so I'm not sure. But uh, I don't think I like thrash metal. But I reckon of all the genres of music you mentioned, if you sat here and we put them on, I would find one something from nearly everything. I just like music. Therefore, I'm going to like things that people seem very, very uncool. So that's one of the greatest things I like about music is that I like everybody else thinks that what I like is okay and so on, or I don't like it, therefore. And it always seems something I don't like comes along and hits me in the face. Shit, I didn't want to like that. <laughs> and there have been many acts over the years. I can't want to like that. I never wanted to like Paul Weller or the jam and stuff. And we did some shows a few years ago, and I was lying on the bus in the afternoon having a, the bass player was doing a jam thing. Wow, I didn't realise I wrote that many good little tracks. So sometimes it's, it's later on you realise, yeah, that was good, man. Another one's R.E.M. I remember seeing a, a, 
a, a promo clip and the, uh, the guitar player where they were talking about the single coming along and he said, uh, we're really lucky because Michael's agreed to be in the video this time. Quick, dickhead. <laughs> You're trying to tell us that it's great that your singer's agreed to be in the fucking video. Go away. It's, it's promo. However, so it shuts me down. And that's the best thing about music. It can... I'm afraid I'm going to get you whether you like it or not. And it still gets me whether I like it or not. Absolutely. And it does it to me a lot. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Francis. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I wish you went the you. best of luck when you get back out on the road with your, with your talk, tunes and talk and tour, whatever it was. Tunes and chat. Yeah, tunes yeah. and chat. That's what it's called, yeah. Yeah, I look forward to that. I'm going to join that really soon. There you go, the brilliant Francis Rossi there. What a guest, what a joy to speak with. I do hope you enjoyed that one. Well, that's it for me this week on this week's show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all the episodes. I've got great guests to bring you in future. Please leave Vintage Rock Pod a five-star review on that podcast app as well. It really does make a big difference. Check out the YouTube channel, and if you could spare the change, please think about becoming a member on there as well and helping to support Vintage Rock Pod and keep it growing. So, until next week then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.